Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Joining me on Trailblazers today is Reshma Saujani. Reshma is the founder of Girls Who Code, and she's also an international best-selling author, attorney, and activist. The daughter of Indian immigrants, Reshma grew up in Illinois, where she attended college and studied political science. Eventually, she went on to attend Harvard University for her master's in public policy and Yale Law for her JD. After graduating, Reshma worked as a corporate attorney on Wall Street, but eventually she decided to pivot to politics. She founded South Asians for Kerry during his 2004 presidential election run. And she also served on Hillary Clinton's National Finance Board during her 2008 primary campaign. In 2010, Reshma herself became the first Indian American woman to run for Congress. And though she lost, it laid the foundation for her most impactful work. While on the campaign trail, Reshma's visits to schools made her increasingly aware of gender disparities in STEM classrooms. So in 2012, she founded Girls Who Code a nonprofit that aims to close the gender gap in tech. To date, they've served over 450,000 girls around the world. She recently retired from the role of CEO of the organization and has embarked on a new mission called the Marshall Plan for Moms. Her vision is to revitalize and restore women into the workforce and to compensate them for their unpaid and unseen labor. She's written an entire book on the subject, one that's due for release in March of 2022. Reshma, you have such a robust career journey. Thank you so much for joining me on Trailblazers today. I'm so excited to chat. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. It's great to be here. So one of the things that amazes me about you is you've traversed finance, law, politics, and nonprofits. So I'm interested in the origin story. You grew up in Chicago. You're the daughter of Indian immigrants who were forced to flee persecution in Uganda. How do you feel your South Asian roots set the foundation for your career pursuits? Oh, my God. I feel like they were everything. My parents came to this country not knowing the language. My dad changed his name from Mukun to Mike. Wow. And it was the quintessential story of assimilation. We grew up in a very kind of white working class neighborhood where there were no brown people. My mom was made fun of for wearing a sari to the Kmart. Our house would regularly get teepeed or egged. And I think the way my parents handled it was just, it was like their tax of being in this country. Wow. And their way was to really assimilate, change your name, fit in, and you'll be all good. And for me, I saw that injustice and that racism and that inequality, and it just pissed me off at a very young age, I knew that this was going to be like my plight, that I wanted to fight against racism. I wanted to fight for the downtrodden. I wanted to fight for the voiceless. And I was going to always learn how to use my voice to make that change. Wow. And so obviously I imagine that eventually led you to pursue a career in law at Yale Law. In post-law school, you spent a considerable amount of time in big law and finance. How did that experience eventually pave your path to politics? 
Mm. I always knew from the time I was little that I wanted to be in politics. I graduated though with like $300,000 in student loan debt. So I was like, oh, I'll go into big law and I'll pay off that student loan debt. And then I'll go do what I'm really meant to do. And so everyone who's listening right now, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. It got me sidetracked. I still haven't paid off those student loans. Wow. So it just took me a U-turn to get back to where I was meant to be. Now, I don't regret it because I learned a lot and I built resiliency. And I think there is something about spending time doing what you don't want to do that brings you closer to like what you want to do. Yeah. No, super interesting. And it resonates a ton. I feel like I've spent a lot of time figuring out what I didn't want to do, but it's led me on a path to figure out what I actually want to do for the longer term and path of my life. I'm curious, a lot of people don't realize that prior to running for office yourself and really delving into politics, you founded organizations like South Asians for John Kerry during his 2004 run. You served on Hillary Clinton's National Finance Board during her 2008 primary run. What was your experience like working with these influential political figures? How did it shape your trajectory? Yeah, back then, I was a post 9 11 young person. I was there and it was like had a tremendous impact on my life and on my friends' lives. And I remember you know, moving into New York City a few months later or whatever. And so many of my brown friends were terrified to ride the subway wow. or to wear a hijab. If you went past the federal building, there were lines and lines and lines of immigrants who had to prove their status to be in this country. Half of little Pakistan was on a 747 back to Karachi in New York City. Yeah, And so there was a lot happening. And it reminded me, my parents were expelled from Uganda because they were Indian. Yep. And in so many Ugandan Asians never participated in the political process. So seeing all these people have to leave the country, being beat up because they wore a turban or wore a hijab, having to put the American flag in front of their storefront building as a sense of protection. But it made me realize like, wow, like we have to participate in the political process to have a say in this country. And so back then, a lot of Indian and Pakistanis would write checks, but they never voted. There wasn't a political group or a desk in the Democratic National Committee, like none of that existed. And so I decided at age, you know, whatever, 25, that I was going to put that together, that I was going to bring these Indian uncles together with these Pakistani (laughs) uncles, and we were going to come together and build a South Asian identity because no one knew whether you were Siddharji, whether you were Hindu, whether you were Muslim, they all thought we were the same. So there was like strength in numbers of coming together and building that identity for political purposes. And it was a very interesting experience and a very challenging experience, but we did it. And we built the first ever South Asians for, since then there's been South Asians for Obama and South Asians for Biden and South Asians for Hillary, right? Yeah. But it was the first and people thought I was crazy, but it was an amazing, amazing experience. And in that process, I got very deeply involved in politics myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love hearing the origin story because in many ways, what you created gave rise to platforms like this one, like Trailblazers. And I think it just points to the fact that we're just now starting to deconstruct the different layers of what it means to be South Asian. But this really set the precedent for that. So really appreciate you sharing that. Now, after starting this organization, working with the Hillary campaign, 
You bravely stepped up to the plate and decided to be the first Indian American woman to run for Congress, an incredible feat. But unfortunately, you lost. Looking back, what would you have done differently? Mm. I would have been myself more. I didn't know what I was doing. No one could tell me how to run a political campaign. My parents didn't come from a long legacy of people in politics, right? I didn't know a lot of wealthy donors. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I, and I actually couldn't ask my parents, hey, how do I build a website? How do I build a campaign? Like, who should I hire? What does a campaign manager do? Yeah. And so I had to kind of figure out a lot of that stuff on my own, which is really fun. But I also think that because I was young, I felt like I really did have imposter syndrome. Wow. I used to like obsess about my stump speech. <laughs> and I used to like write it down and pace my apartment and like perfect every word because I wanted to sound smart. I wanted to sound like a Congress lady. And in doing so, I just never connected. I remember I used to wear these like J. Crew suits. And I was fun. So funny, I just found a picture of myself from my first campaign that my best friend sent me. And, you know, no makeup, they're just <laughs> flat and just boxy. And I'm a girl who loves hoops and like red lipstick. Like that's who I yep. am. <laughs> I so love that. I think sometimes when you're not trying to be you, it's hard to connect. And I, and I see that because at Girls Who Code, I was all me. And I've been able to build movements and inspire people, hopefully, by being myself. Yeah. And the messy part of it and the failure part of it and like the imperfect pieces of it. And so it's not shocking to me that the young woman who was trying to be perfect and trying to look the part failed at getting the part. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect transition to brave, not perfect, which seems like such a core part of your journey and who you are and the story that you've been telling for many years. And I imagine the inspiration behind it is you bravely stepped up to the plate again, running for New York Public Advocate in 2013, and you came in third. How did it set the stage for Brave Not Perfect? How did that come about? Well, I got this email. I'm a public speaker. And so speaking at TED is like the Super Bowl. Yep. And I had been waiting and waiting for that email to like get that invite. And I finally get the invite. And of course, I get the <laughs> invite like a couple months before the conference. And so my first instinct was just to do the same speech I'd always been doing. But I was like, you know, when you get on that stage, you have an opportunity to really say something that can change lives. And so taking a step back as a feminist, as an activist, like what have I seen that might explain for why we still have this enormous gender gap? And it was a story of girls deleting the code during that first week when they're coming to our program, they're learning how to code. And instead of writing a line of code and it being wrong and them saying to someone, hey, I think I did this wrong, which I do differently, they rather erase it, delete it, and pretend like they didn't write anything at all. Yeah. And so people really resonated with it because like, I do that too. And I think this idea of like how we're raised to be perfect and not brave and what are the implications of this bravery deficit on our country and our world really resonated and the speech was just a speech. I didn't intend yeah. to write a book. I didn't intend to spend the next several years of my life talking about it. I just was going to give a speech. But then the speech got 5 million views. And I was like, huh, part of the thing about writing a book is it allows you to do an exploration. Yep. Is this idea true? When does it start? How does it start? And then how can you unlearn it? I'm kind of going through that same exploration now about motherhood and women in the workforce yep. in this moment. So the movement came much after 
really understanding and writing that book and realizing there's a problem here that is deeply rooted and socialized in our society globally. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned something really key there of figuring out when this starts. And so I kind of want to track backwards. Obviously, you founded Girls Who Code in 2012, but you yourself didn't have that experience in tech, despite all the other industries you've traversed. What was that inciting moment where you realized this is something I have to start? This is something I have to do? For me, Girls Who Code started because I didn't understand why women were not in this field where you could make a lot of money and march into the middle class. And I was the quintessential Desi girl who came from working class parents who were like, go be an engineer, go be a lawyer, go be a doctor, because it gave you a good paycheck. Yeah. And it gave you security, right? Our parents were always searching for financial security. And so in 2012, coding was that industry where it was booming. You made like $120,000 as a software programmer. So I started Girls Who Code. Tech was like almost like a vehicle, but it wasn't the thing. The thing was the opportunity that it afforded you. And then, you know, when I ran my first program, I remember sitting there, I had invited my friends in from the New York Immigration Coalition because I had been very active in helping DACA students. And I asked them to come in and teach my students about the problem. Wow. If you could build anything to solve that problem, what would you build? It was in watching them think about the innovations to solve that problem that I was like, wow, maybe I didn't get elected to Congress, but maybe I can create a generation of young women who can be change makers and who can solve DACA and climate and sexual harassment and all of these massive issues through technology. And that's when the light bulb went off. And that's why I was interested in building a movement of change makers, of young women change makers. Absolutely. And today, Girls Who Code has served over 450,000 young girls, and they have a cohort of 90,000 college-aged alumni. What's been the most memorable moment? Oh, gosh, too many to count. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think building Girls Who Code, it's it's my baby. It's been the blessing of my life. I feel good about where the world is going to go because of all of you. (laughs) And I meet young women every single day that are so smart, that have so much empathy and compassion, and that are going to solve our world's toughest problems. And I have a lot of pride that a lot of those young women are my students. Yeah, And I know how much resiliency, especially in the past year, how much they had to, you know, getting Wi-Fi in a Burger King parking lot, your mom's essential worker and having to take care of their own siblings, dropping out of college because they were too afraid to go to school and potentially get COVID because they know that the incidence of COVID amongst black communities is much greater. I mean, it's just yeah the amount we young women wear and still we persevere and still we soldier on to make the world better. And so to me, the whole experience has just been so inspiring. Part of what I also tell people is like, put me in a room of teenage girls and I'm like the happiest person in the world. (laughs) That's just my jam. That's the community that I want to fight for that I just feel because I've been that girl. I've been that woman. I've been that mom now. And I have a big mouth and I'm a fighter. And that's what I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, this summer you retired from your role as CEO of Girls Who Code, and I think a lot of people believe that when you start an organization, you're in it for life. How did you approach making that decision? I just didn't tell anybody. (laughs) It was always the plan. I personally believe that you should never run anything forever. 
I think around six to eight years, you should be out. And listen, I could have done that job forever. I loved it. But I knew that there was another girl's code in me, maybe four more in me. So if I didn't leave, I would never go start that next movement. And I also think that as an entrepreneur, I was able to build Marshall Plan for moms so fast because I had taken everything I'd learned from Girls Who Code and did it again. Yeah. And the thing is with social entrepreneurs, we don't tap them on the shoulder and say, what's your next idea? <laughs> what's your next thing you want to build? And we need to. And I knew that no one's going to tap me on my shoulder. So I had to tap myself. Yeah. And so especially after COVID-19, like I rebuilt my organization and it was healthy and strong. I had a lot of savings in the bank. I had the perfect person that I wanted to run my baby. And so it was time and she was ready, which was perfect. So I just did it. And I remember my husband and I, a couple months ago, he was like, you know, you, you didn't even tell me until after. And I was like, yeah, because I didn't tell him. I didn't tell my dad and Tony because I knew wow. that they would talk me out of it. I literally just decided by myself and called my board chair and called Tarika and just did it. And it's been hard. At first, it was like, you know, it was an identity shift. My husband's wearing the girls of code hat. The baby's got the girls of code onesie. The dog's got, you know, we're, we're <laughs> girls of code all day, all night, right? Like it's our identity. Yeah. Even now when I go to the doctor's office, they're like, what do you do? And it's like, well, I run this organization that teaches, you know, girls to code. And so I think the identity shift is real. I think it's also as an entrepreneur, it is hard to start your next thing because you know better now, right? You know what that was just like. Yeah. But it's amazing. And Tariq is doing so great. Wow. And you realize too that like, I'm still in it. I'm there to support the organization. I am always the founder. I am always fighting for our girls. And the connection yeah. between what's happening with women and them is the same. It's just an extension of the work. So. Yeah. No, that's an incredible perspective to have. And I want to speak about your next chapter, The Marshall Plan for Moms, and your new book that's coming out in March of 2022, Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired this vision and share a little bit of the specifics? Yeah, I mean, I never would have thought that this would be the issue that I'd be working on. We actually just experienced the largest exodus of women ever in the history of our nation, from the workforce. Yep. And when COVID started, we were 51% of the labor force and we've now lost, you know, back where we were in 1987. And so if you were to actually go into an office today, you'd be like, where are the women? Yeah. And so I am so infuriated that there's no plan to solve that. Yep. And so when you talk to women about why they left, they didn't leave because they wanted to, they were pushed out. Because we don't, in society, have affordable childcare. We don't have paid leave. We haven't gotten rid of the motherhood penalty. We still have gender inequality at the home. There's so many structural issues. Absolutely. That need to be fixed, both in government, in the private sector, and in culture. Moms are treated in this country, in many ways, as martyrs and without a lot of respect, even though it is like the most important job in the world. Yeah. And- 86% of women in the workforce that are 40 and above have children. So it's like, if we can't figure out how to make work work for moms, we'll never get to equality in the workforce. Yeah. And so this is the movement that I'm building. You know, one of the things I loved about Girls Who Code is I had a clear, okay, I want gender parity in the technology workforce. I'm at 20%. How do I get to 50? Yeah. Similarly here, I want equality in the home and in the workforce. 
in the home, it's women are still doing 86% of the housework. How do I get that number to 50? And, you know, in the workplace, we're at essentially 37%. How do we get back to 50? So it's like, I love problems where there's clear metrics. And so we can actually figure out how to get there and make real cultural change. Absolutely. You know, this new vision of yours, the fact that it's something you didn't even see yourself tackling, I think is such a testament to the versatility of your career and your innate nature to just take on these big global challenges. So my last question for you today is, being that you've trailblazed a path in so many different spaces, what advice do you have for young South Asians? That you are good enough, you are ready now, and to not wait to be perfect. I just, there's so much change to be made. And I think in some ways, it's like our culture and our upbringing has builds inherent resiliency. But the downside of it is like, for so long, I was living my life for my parents and not myself. Yeah. And if you believe that this life and this journey is about finding what it's meant to be for you and what you're meant to do in this world at this moment, you have to figure out what you want, not what they want you to do. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks so much for coming on Trailblazers. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.